for Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator of the contemporary scene. Here's Gene. This is my new Sears Roebuck microphone. It's very good. Right. Feeding it through our handmade heat kit amplifier. <laughs> All right, class. Uh, stop fooling around. It's time to get ready for business. Come on, now. Sit up straight. Bring it up. There you go. Very good. Very good. I must say that, uh, yeah, I, I have mixed feelings, gang, I'll tell you. I, uh, I must say that, on the one hand, I enjoyed the... Uh, the uh, Democratic Convention, just because, you know, it was there. See, it, it replaces, uh, uh, well, a uh, policewoman, for one thing. And that can't be all bad. Anything that replaces SWAT and policewoman has got to have something going for it. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've always felt very sorry for people who actually watch that stuff and seriously enjoy it. You know, like, uh, you know, three-part article in the TV Guide, The Real Angie Dickinson. You know, behind the scenes with the rookies. <laughs> but, uh, you know, everybody to his own bag, even if your bag has holes in it and is an old used flower sack, uh, everybody to his own bag. However, I will say I felt a little cheated about the convention, the Democratic convention. I uh, Nothing happened, you know. I had the feeling like uh, I was confronting a vast lake of uh, no-cal beer. It looks like beer, it smells like beer, but it tastes like used rainwater. <laughs> you know? In other words, there's just no action. A lot of people sleeping on the on the benches, you know, and, and even when they cheered for the candidates, you could see there was a sort of a forced cheer. Have you ever been to a party where everybody keeps saying, oh, wow, gee, is this a great party? Oh, wow. And you can see there's a certain deadness in the eye. Uh, it's... Uh, it's just nothing happening, see, and uh, so I, I can only say that I have mixed feelings. I like the idea of a convention. I enjoy conventions. I really, really love them. I mean, uh, political conventions. Uh, of course, I was to the International Paint Manufacturers Convention once, and it was a total drag. Uh, I, I was. I appeared there. See, I do a lot of industrials, and, and, uh, and among the things you do, you go to these conventions, you know, where you're going to play your show and do your thing. And uh, I said, gee, the International Paint Manufacturer, that sounds exciting. And uh, I went to a couple of the lectures. Uh, for example, there was one lecture said, Are you pushing ochre? And I went there. See, apparently the year, that was the ochre year. Uh, you remember a couple of years ago, all paint was burnt orange, and we went through the avocado phase. And it was the ochre year. Nobody bought ochre, apparently. And I went to a lecture on how to sell ochre. And uh, they had all these uh, decorators up there, you know, people named Chucky and Mr. Fred. And uh, it just, just didn't sing. And I, I, I tried to get the excitement going. I wore a badge, you know, a uh, red, white, and blue badge they had with the uh, paintbrushes and stuff, the little things you hang on you. 
But uh, I know how it feels uh, to be a, a convention delegate. I was once a convention delegate, and not a political convention. I have never been a political convention delegate. I was a union delegate. And uh, that, that is, it would talk about uh, uh, non-conventions. I remember one guy behind me got up to try to, to, to uh, put somebody else in nomination. And uh, I heard this thumping and, and uh, thudding behind me, and there were three guys hitting them with rubber truncheons. At that point, I knew it was not a convention that we were about, and it was a, I don't know, it was, you know. But, and when the, when the pictures came out in the Union uh, magazine, it shows a lot of smiling conventioneers sitting around, see. And I noticed that all those pictures were go, of guys that I saw using the rubber truncheons. So uh, you, you, you pick them as you see them. And I, I was very excited, though, about being nominated to be a delegate, and uh, the best part of being a delegate, in case you're interested, is the souvenirs. Uh, oh yes, uh, souvenirs are very big with delegates. First of all, you keep your uh, you keep your badge. You see the badge you get with this thing, and you keep these. Uh, there's an envelope that comes with the glassine that pins on you that says uh, "Lodge seats" uh, or something like that, uh, alternate or uh, multiple dipole. Uh, all kinds of phrases they have. Uh, like, uh, for example, semi-tuned Yagi. That's a good one. So uh, <laughs> you don't know what that means, do you? Well, I do, and I don't care whether you know what it means or not. The hell with you. Uh, just once in a while, I flash some knowledge here just to show the Yardbird that he's not quite caught up yet. Yagi is spelled with a G. It's not that uh, Sangria. Yagi Sangria. No, it's Yagi, not Yago. Yago, you remember him. He was this troublemaker. Kept whispering in the, what was his name? Come on, class. Who was it to whom in his, his ear he poured out the trouble? It was not Hamlet. I'll give you that clue. Nor was it Caesar. It was not Orestes either. That's correct. You're right. So uh, it was uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. And he kept whispering in his ear that there was trouble going on in the counting house. You remember that? And there was hanky-panky with whom? Who was the hanky-panky being performed with? Right, that's correct. Uh, Mona Lisa. No, no, it was, it was, uh, <laughs> she was a lady with a very large glandular endowment the time I, the last time I saw this thing, and I can understand Hanky Panky, all right. And the sad thing about it was that the guy that was doing the, uh, you know, was really mad. He was walking around and, uh, you know, suspecting his wife of treachery. You can understand why. He was the only major general. Uh, in uh, the ancient armies that was four feet nine that I ever saw, weighed 27 pounds, and I couldn't buy him at all as the lover of Desdemona, who was six feet four, and she tipped in at 200. She had a lot going for her. She was mucho lady. But uh, I, I, I don't like to bother you with these classical studies here on a night like this, <laughs> right after the convention. You know, I, I must say one thing on... Uh, what I enjoy as a convention observer, and I have done this long before Edwin Newman came on the scene, you're listening to the great cliché collector of the political arena. I have collected, in fact, I even have a proof here, so if you listen carefully, here is a cut of a record, a comedy record that I made back in 1960 uh, for Electra. And it was a compilation of all the general purpose nomination political phraseologies. None of those. Just watch me. Hey, 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 watch me, not her. 
<laughs> in this case. Don't ask her. She doesn't know because I've changed it. Okay, watch me. Always keep your eye on me. Now, uh, in, this, in this case, you see, I, I collected political uh, phraseologies that were all purpose. You see, the great thing about a cliché is a cliché is multi, in fact, omnipurposeful. It can cover anything. For example, a true cliché is, uh, well, you never know. And that can cover almost anything. You can just look out of the window and there's nothing out there. And you just look out, long, long look, and you say, you turn to your friends and you just say with great portentousness, well, you never know. At that point, they will think you've said something very profound. That's known as the, the omnipurpose or the total uh, uh, non-directional free-form floating cliché. It covers every possible exigency. Now, political speeches are filled with those. In fact, many political speeches are made completely of those. So it's very hard to, to you know, find out what a political speech is about except good things. Now, uh, it's, like, it's like being in the middle of a snowstorm and trying to catch an individual snowflake. Uh, if you try to do that, you'll find that's about as easy as catching an actual statement in a political speech. There has never been a candidate since probably Nero's day who was not for tax reform. I mean, let's face it, no candidate's going to come out and say, I am for tax inequities. I mean, that's like motherhood. So this is one of the great political cliches that keeps running through all political speeches. You will find it also uh, in August. You'll hear plenty of comments about that same thing. <laughs> One of the great cliches of this time, I've collected several that are current. See, cliches change to, they tend to change with the winds of language. For example, a, a contemporary cliche is deep commitment. You see, now that, that is a 1976 cliche as opposed to uh, the cliche of 1972, which meant the same thing, moral involvement was the cliché of that period. So they, you know, they, they, they go on and on. The cliché rolls on like old man river, and it ain't do nothing, don't do nothing, don't tote no bales, but rolls right on. And uh, so here, you want to hear the, uh, my speech? This is, a, this is an all-purpose nominating speech that, uh, and I'll tell you a little story about it later on after I play the speech for you. This originated as a performance I once did in, uh, in a nightclub. Uh, then later, I did it on a, on a, on a radio show, which I'll, I'll describe, describe the scene after uh, I play the record. This and it later became a part of a record. So listen carefully to the all-purpose nominating convention speech. It's a convention, you see. And it's all-purpose. And uh, you'll notice that all the cliches are there and all good things are meant and said. Doesn't that sound familiar, gang? Hear that, hear that little gavel? Sounds just like it. Americans! Hello, delegates. Hello, Americans. Because that little old gavel. I am honored. Yes, it's me. To stand before 
Saul was a political satirist, didn't you? Well, let me tell you something. Mort Saul didn't satirize uh, politics. He satirized politicians. I am a political satirist. In other words, uh, there's a big difference between satirizing one guy and satirizing a process. A world of difference. And uh, you notice that that recording, which was made 16 years ago, sounds absolutely fresh today. I mean, it sounds, it sounds authentic. Well, all right, that's because satire is timeless. Polemics is momentary. In other words, if you were to listen to a, a recording of, uh, of Mort Saul satirizing T. Sherman, uh, Sherman T. Adams or T. Lamar Caudle, uh, great, uh, it would be meaningless, you know, today. But uh, anyway, uh, you notice the cliches, uh, great American, uh, destined to rank with, uh, did you hear that at all last week? Uh, of course, uh, uh, one of the great political cliches is to always invoke the image of the past. I counted 34 speeches, all of which referred to Thomas Jefferson. And you're very selective about the past, you see. Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't bring up the image of Warren Harding. Uh, well, he was a president, too, you know. <laughs> And no matter what your party does, you blame it on the other party. So uh, if your party, say, started and carried on the Vietnam War, you somehow make it sound like the other party did it. And at long last, uh, you're going to rout out the rascals who pulled that one. So uh, this is, this is a, a political, these are called political games. There's been a lot of studies 
uh, something that Americans don't study much. You know, because we're individualists. We don't like to think of ourselves en masse. No, we really don't. And so every kid in, in uh, his beginning studies in psychology always uh, studies primarily Freud. And uh, he does not study Pavlov. If he does, he's briefly mentioned. <laughs> and, and, and see, we, we, are, we are Pavlovian creatures. In other words, we are, when you're with a crowd of people, you ain't the same as when you're home sitting there picking your ear with a nut pick. No, you're a totally different creature, almost like if uh, when you get in a crowd you turn into a zebra, when all up, up to this point you've been uh, a gopher, you turn into another animal. And we don't want to accept that. You know, No, no, I maintain. But when you get into a crowd, you do. So there's, there's things called salivation, uh, salivation elements. Now, what is a salivation element? Okay, a salivation element in uh, Pavlov's dogs are what makes the dog salivate. And so if you teach the dog to salivate, every time you go, you knock three times, the dog, you know, every time you knock three times, he gets a shot of Alpo. Uh, you keep that up for a couple of days, and then you go, and he, his mouth starts to water. You don't give him any Alpo, but his mouth waters, you see. So eventually he'll think he actually did get Alpo, when all he got was, you see. <laughs> so we have, in our, in our political speeches, we have things called salivation phrases. Uh, for example, freedom is a salivation word. Everybody salivates at that word. Love is a word that people salivate at constantly. In our society, it would not be used in other societies. Uh, a concern, a deep and everlasting concern for the individual. This is a salivating phrase, and hence is in every political speech. Uh, total, now here's another one, uh, Total commitment. This is another salivating phrase. And you'll find that in every political speech of 1976. You see, in earlier ages, it was, it was always assumed that a candidate for president was, in fact, totally committed. But today you have to say it. He is totally committed. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as a, as a cliché uh, searcher-outer, uh, I'm... Uh, I'm fascinated. Have you noticed? Have you noticed when you watch the convention, you'll see people uh, looking around. See, they'll, the camera will pick up down there, and they'll be looking around. See, and they'll be talking to other guys. Uh, they'll even be on the phone. And all of a sudden, without any warning, they'll suddenly cheer. Well, it, it, that meant that the that, uh, the button has been pressed. <laughs> A salivation phrase has been picked up, and he knows this is what you're supposed to cheer for. It's like when you go to a comic. You go to a, a good comic, for example, has what they call laugh lines. He knows you're going to laugh. So whenever you're with a, uh, a certain audiences, see, uh, uh, every audience has its own laugh lines, and uh, you throw a laugh line, and then they know you're being funny, even if the stuff you're saying isn't funny. They know it's supposed to be, so they'll laugh. Those are called laugh lines. That's why television always has, today, it has uh, laughter behind all of its comedy. You hear somebody laughing, you say, oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's really funny. Well, so uh, you salivate at the sound of others laughing. It's just like if you're, a, if you're a goat or a dog. Let's say you're a dog. A dog will salivate at the sound of another dog eating. Okay, gang? Well, I know it doesn't happen to you. You're not a goat or a dog. But, 
Oh, I've made a great study of the politics. But to me, I don't know whether any of you saw the piece I did on Nixon in my last Carnegie Hall show, which was Nixon arriving in heaven. And a very fascinating piece. See, because and it wasn't wasn't about Nixon. It was about the nature of sin. And uh, and uh, that is uh, a far more interesting to me uh, study as to whether or not Charlie was a good guy and Fred is a bad guy. Uh, you know, and oh, incidentally, there's that that also changes with time and tide. It's it's a very difficult thing to have to have to tell people that today's villain could be very well tomorrow's hero. Uh, did you notice all the Democrats cheering uh, uh, Truman? Well, he, that <laughs> was the Democratic Party, who uh, in, uh, in one of the past conventions tried to dump Truman. And, uh, you know, so he was no hero with the Democrats. Uh, so, so, but now he's a hero. See, so who knows who tomorrow's heroes will be? That's the scary part of it, you know. If you, if you were to wake up 100 years from now, and read history of our time, you may be shocked out of your thing. I mean, it would be, it, it would amaze, say, for example, a guy out of, uh, say, 1778 to read Gore Vidal's Burr. <laughs> he would say, what? Burr? A hero? <laughs> He'd be astounded because, because uh, we tend to, to, uh, to be very tolerant of past sins, if they're far, far enough past. In other words, you find a lot of people kind of like Napoleon now. But if uh, Napoleon tromped over you in the Battle of Warsaw, it would have been a different thing, you see. And so uh, past sins, I know, I see it, past sins tend to be kind of benevolent and funny. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. No, I love conventions. To me, convention is the biggest show of democracy. And... Uh, and uh, to me, I love it. I can't, I can't uh, tell you. Uh, I, I enjoy it immensely. But I'll tell you, I don't enjoy it in the hall. No, I don't. I've been to a couple conventions, and I find in the hall, uh, the convention tends to just to be a lot of people walking around wondering when, you know, when they're going to bring in the hot coffee. Uh, and uh, you can hardly hear most places in the hall, and it's hot usually or cold, depending on how close you are to the air conditioning duct. And uh, it isn't really very exciting in the hall. It's when the frame of television is put around it that it gets exciting, curiously enough. The frame, oh yes, very much so. Because, you know, when they, when they constantly uh, switch to, say, John Chancellor, and the uh, Chancellor is uh, vaguely amused at the sight of seeing uh, the Mississippi delegation down there throwing coconuts back and forth, at uh, you know whatever they happen to be doing. Well, did you see the scene where they were throwing the ball back and forth? Well, well, uh, yes, I saw that. I, 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 everybody saw that, which uh, tells you a lot about conventions. It really does. Uh, that that the biggest thing that happened to many a uh, delegate was that he actually got his hand on the ball. He hit it once, and uh, you could see that uh, you know a delegate is. Uh, if there's anybody who is, uh, in most cases, totally without any power whatsoever, it's the, it's the average walking around, run-of-the-mill delegate to any convention. You know? <laughs> and it's, it, to be a delegate, you see, is a good way to get out of uh, Indianapolis for four days. And... Uh, that, 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 that has a lot about that. I, that. Listen, conventions. I lived in the biggest convention city in America. 
Chicago is the number one convention city, you know. And, and uh, you'd walk around Chicago some days, and you wouldn't see a, a resident for sometimes months on end. You just saw guys with badges and, uh, you know, throwing the paper sacks out of windows, <laughs> riding around on the tops of cabs. Oh, yeah, listen, before I, uh, you know, close out the uh, whole convention thing, uh, uh, <laughs> the Democratic candidate, uh, Mr. Carter, uh, for any of you who've lived in the South, and I have at one point, uh, you're aware of the of the of a very he's a very common type of Southern politician. Uh, for many of you, it's probably new. You live out here in the East, where all politicians are issue oriented. If I get elected, I will pave. You know that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, he is uh, he is in a sense the evangelical. Uh, invoking God type of uh, of a candidate that has been seen uh, in the South for many years of, uh, you know, both political parties. It's not just one political party, but it's the first time, really, that uh, I think, that I can think of, really, that a uh, that the evangelical, uh, mess- messianic, in a sense, type of, uh, of political candidate has gotten to the top slot. <laughs> And it's confusing a lot of people. See, uh, a, a, a evangelical person is never specific. So if anyone says, no, no, if anyone thinks, well, Carter isn't specific, that's, that's in a sense the contradiction of evangelism. Uh, evangelism is never specific. It promises heaven and hell. It promises to lead one to the promised land. And uh, one doesn't get specific about what the promised land is like. One doesn't say, when you get to the promised land, there is going to be all 28 flavors of the Howard Johnson ice cream. We'll be there, including coconut raisin. <laughs> so evangelism is a, is, a, is a comparatively new thing on the national, uh, repu- uh, I say the republic. It's new to the republic. It's not new to specific areas of the country. Fascinating. And by the way, if you th- if you think this is an anti-Carter remark, you you're just not listening. It's just it's it's the observance. It's 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 the observance of a new type of candidate. I haven't heard any political commentator say that. So I thought somebody who knows something about it should put it on the line. That evangelism is uh, is really what Carter is up to, and uh, it's a curious thing. And uh, evangelism can be good. Let's let's face it. Evangelism is always uplifting, for one thing. Remember that. And who can be against it? Uh, oh, no, no, no. You cannot be the anti-heaven candidate. You'll never get anywhere with that. So <laughs> it's a fascinating, fascinating uh, national development. And he even has the look on the, 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 the kind of ethereal look of a man uh, who... who uh, was an evangelist. I, I've, I've sat in many an audience when uh, when an evangelist. I bet I bet a lot of you have never been in an audience where an evangelist is working. No, a lot of no. Oral Roberts is not an evangelist. No, he's a faith healer. That's a different thing. People are, they think oh, Oral Roberts. No, there is the soft-spoken evangelist, which uh, yeah, that's that's Carter, who does not thunder and bring on hellfire and brimstone. But you know that. He's not only on the side of the angels, he could very well be one of them. You see, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the, uh, the soft-spoken evangelist. And uh, fascinating. It's, uh, it's an intriguing development. 
It was foreseen, by the way, by certain political reporters as long ago as the turn of the century. You've been listening to Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator on the contemporary scene.